As we think about God's word and how it shifts and changes our lives, um, we are now uh, second, second Sunday into this, this sermon series on King David. And as I told you last Sunday, I'm fired up about this series. I, I don't, I, I'm not sure why. I think it's because King David is so relatable. Right, this man who has these, these mountain highs and these valley lows, and you find this God who is just consistent throughout his entire being, all of his life, just working uh, this, this thread of God's grace and truth throughout. And um, uh, last weekend, we jumped into David and Goliath. This morning, we've got a, a new saga that's even filled with more drama, and uh, um, I know God has good things for us uh, through his word. So we're going to open up to chapter 18, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. And um, we're going to read verses 6 through 16, 6 through 16, and hear about Saul's jealousy of David. Let's hear now uh, the word of the Lord. So as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel dancing and singing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy, musical instruments, the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw, Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So since, uh, since the Major League Baseball seems to be wrestling with these, these strikes, let's talk baseball this morning. Not normally something I'd typically throw at you. We save that for Dean Hampton, our site pastor. But what if I told you one of the worst hitters in the history of Major League Baseball was also at one time one of the most sought-out players in the nation? Do you believe me? Meet Jeff Mathis. Today, Jeff plays in the, the minor leagues. He's, he's far past his prime. But at the peak of Jeff's career, every scout in America wanted him on their roster. And Jeff's tenure, he was signed by the Angels, the Blue Jays, the Diamondbacks, the Marlins, and the Braves. He was a big deal. In fact, in 2018, Mathis was so popular, the, the Wall Street Journal did an article on him. It was headlined, The Hottest Commodity in Baseball. But if you looked at Jeff's stat sheet, it made no sense. Jeff's batting average was uh, 198. You might not know what that number means, uh, so I, I, I'll translate it for you. That's, that's not just bad, that's terrible. Jeff's average was so poor, his lifetime average was so pitiful, there's only one man in the history of baseball who has a worse record than him. Like high schoolers can outbat this guy. And you, you would think that that number alone would sideline him, right? But as you look over the playbooks, it just gets worse. 
As a catcher, they say Jeff's defense behind the plate was just as bad as his offense beside the plate. So how does a man who is that bad get a reputation that's that good? Come to find out, Jeff had two unique talents that, that no one else could match. And neither one can be measurable. You can't find it on paper. But if you find Jeff behind the plate, time and time again, Jeff's presence would change the momentum of the entire game. Here's how. First, Jeff was known as one of the best pitch framers in the nation. Let me explain what that means. Jeff had this ability, this unique ability to catch a pitch in such a way that the umpires would call more strikes than balls when he was behind. With the movement of his glove, he could influence the umpire to change the game in his direction. Don't ask me how they do this. Second, Jeff had a reputation. He built this up over time to be one of the greatest game callers in the history of the sport. Again, let me explain. As catcher, Jeff could watch the batter walk up to him and he could read them like no other man in the league could. He would eye them up, he knew their bats, and he would precision his glove to tell the pitchers where to throw and what to throw. And by his counsel, they would send strikes every time. When you put those two things together, you have a perfect storm for a no-hitter. His former team manager said it like this. He said, in the catching fraternity, Mathis is revered for being the best at what they all want to be the best at. What would happen, though, if, if Jeff Mathis found his self-worth, not in those unique talents, but in the stat sheet on the back of his baseball card? What would happen if he compared his life with all the other players around him who were clearly better than him? The comparison game is a treacherous game, isn't it? You know, the basis by which we, we measure ourselves, by which we come to understand our self-worth, it's an important reference point. Last week, we opened up to this famous scene of David and Goliath. David had walked upon battle between Israel and this giant, and without a second thought, we learned he volunteered. But to all the men around him, the stats didn't add up, right? The back of his player card didn't make sense. It was grim, so much so that his brother Eliab, he told him, he said, you're a presumptuous little brat. You're nothing but a shepherd boy. But now this morning, we find David, he's on the other side of that battle. He's won. And people begin to see David as this, this different man in this different light. In fact, so much so that as we open up to this chapter this morning, there's this all-out parade raining through the streets. There is singing and dancing, tambourines, songs of joy, these stringed instruments. You name it, the, the noisemakers were in full force. And make note of this, this was no ordinary celebration, right? The last time you saw this kind of party among God's people was when Moses had led Israel from slavery in Egypt across the sea to freedom. This was a big deal. And so as these women went up to King Saul, we're told they were singing this song of call and response. It was something called an antiphonal refrain. Saul struck down thousands, and in response, you heard the other side declare, David, ten thousands. It was, it was kind of like a football game with the cheerleaders. In fact, let's just practice it for a minute. Humor me, okay? The chant reverberated in the streets. I want you to do it with me. Say, Saul, thousands. Saul, thousands. David, ten. Saul, thousands. David, ten. Saul, thousands. David, ten. It was in every sense of the word, like a victorious triumph 
chant of God's people. But as they kicked up the dust, King Saul suddenly wasn't feeling the vibe. You would think Saul would have been joyous and proud of his men of this moment, right? His army just won the impossible battle. And as leader over all these people, like he gets the credit. But instead of taking in the moment, Saul watched this scene play out around him. And much like Eliab, he can't believe his ears. All he could hear were the metrics. Saul, thousands, David, 10. Saul, thousands, David, 10. And as he processed the numbers, he started to get concerned. When was the last time you played the comparison game? I mean, it's a rampant game, right? I I would argue that for many of us, even this morning, we've already played it. It's how we're conditioned. We compare cars on the way to church. We compare our homes. We compare our kids. We compare our clothing, our hairstyles. We compare our makeup. We know the game really well. And you can understand Saul's concern, right? He was, he was the one to lead the troops in the first place. Who is this David guy? It was Saul who had called for David to fight on their behalf. It was Saul who had prepared him with his own armor for battle, though he didn't use it. Sure, David won, but Saul was the general. Don't take that from him. I mean, the coach doesn't get any credit. Come on. Look at this in verse 8. King Saul said, they ascribed to David 10,000 and to me only 1,000. What's next? We're going to give him the kingdom? We're going to give him my throne? Context is super important, uh, I think, in this moment. You know, deep down behind the scenes, King Saul knew something that no one else in in that region knew. And that is God had removed him from leadership. The prophet Samuel, just chapters before this, had told him, the spirit of the Lord is done with you. See, Saul was this king who had chosen these sinful paths and these evil ways. He was not wise in his leadership, always jumping the gun. Samuel came to him, this prophet, he said, Saul, though you thought little of yourself, God still holds you accountable in leadership. Therefore, the Lord removed him. See, Saul knew, Saul knew it was only a matter of time before this word against him was gonna come to fruition. That's what a prophet does, they foretell. And so when he hears these cheers, he's triggered. You know, it seems to me envious is a curious thing, isn't it? I mean, envy is a powerful thing. We live in a day where where if, if everyone wants to be you, you can get paid for that. Did you know that? I mean, who would have thought of that? You can have a full time job just looking good and living the life everyone else wants to live. And we've even given a respected title. We call it what? The influencer. Influencer teachers, influencer moms, influencers in fashion and home decor, influencer traveler, influencer photographers, influencers in, in baking and chefs. I could go on and on. The comparison game rules this world. Warren Buffett once said it like this. He said, it's not greed that drives us. It's envy. You know, in the competition, they, they always want to see you do well, but never better than them. Here's what I want us to do this morning, though. I want us to look at this pattern of envy, and I want you to see how it eventually erodes a man's life. I feel like this chapter is sort of an admonitory chapter for us because from this point forward, we really find two kings. 
There's one whose life begins to spiral out of control as he's fixated on the threat before him. And the other, soon to be anointed both in Judah and Israel, now walks confidently and content with the Lord. And here's what I want us to spend the rest of our time. I want to do like an autopsy of the envious life with you. As we look at this chapter, I want to point out three consequences of this, this kind of lifestyle that we weren't meant to live as God's people. So let's look at this first one. A life of envy leads quickly to a miserable life. What's the first emotion that you saw when, when Saul hears those women cheering in the streets? Did you catch that? What's the first thing that we see in Saul's demeanor? You'll notice that the Bible doesn't tell us that, that he felt jealousy or, or the emotions of envy or pride. No, again, look at this in verse 8. And Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. The first emotion that rears its ugly head in King Saul's heart is anger. And this isn't just any anger. In, in Hebrew, the root word is burn. He was kindled inside. He was on fire with rage, very angry. Seems to me, if, if you think about it, anger is like the close cousin of envy, right? If, if I were to ask you how to describe jealousy or envy, if you were to try come up with words, you could probably use the same words for either envy or anger. Or just think about this with me. If we were to walk into a kennel and I were to take a dog's bone from his mouth and I were to give it to the dog in the cage next to him, what's the first thing we would see in that first dog's face? Teeth. Growling, right? An envious life is an angry life. And we all know an angry life is a miserable life. Look at where this leads. Look at this in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was still playing the lyre. And we already know from previous chapters, David's playing this harp, this lyre to soothe King David. He can tell Saul, or King Saul, he can tell Saul's angry about something. Things have now went bad and they've went to worse. See, Saul's not only angry, he's now, we're told, raving. Again, let's go to the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for that, that word rave, it, it typically would not be spoken that way in English. It would be prophesy. That's because when, when you translate it in English, it normally has to do with the person speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. So they're, 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 they're rambling, right? He's prophesying. But for, for King Saul, in this context, it's not prophesy, it's rave. It's rage like a madman. See, because as we just found out, Saul's no longer hearing from the Holy Spirit. He's now hearing from a harmful spirit. And we need to flesh this out because this, this is a bit concerning, I think, for us. Because at first, it looks like God's partnering with this. Right? Our scripture said God sends a harmful spirit to, send, uh, to, 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 to torment Saul. Now, time out. What's that about? Back in chapter 16, um, we're told the spirit had left Saul, the Holy Spirit, because of his evil. He had done evil in the Lord's eyes, and now a harmful spirit has been sent to him. That was the first time. This is actually round two. And in the first time, Saul calls on his men to go find someone who can soothe him in his anguish. So they go out to figure this plan out. Who can, who can soothe Saul in this, this torment of this evil spirit? And they find none other than who? David. David sent to him to play the harp relieve him in his anguish. But now this morning, a second time, Saul's sin has overcome him, right? And we're told this harmful spirit returns. Here's the important nuance. 
both times, think about this, both times God didn't plague this man with evil. God allowed this harmful spirit upon him because he invited it in by sin. See, there's a distinct correlation in this story between envy and harm, right? Between envy and evil. We're told, first Saul was angry, then Saul was displeased. From that point on, Saul now eyed David with a jealous eye wherever he went. The next day, what happens? Saul swings the door wide open and gives a foothold for the harmful spirit in his life to move. We shouldn't be surprised. James 3.16 says it like this. Look at this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil thing seen. Envy is that in our lives, right, that robs us of joy. It destroys the countenance inside us. We, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, right? We, we wrestle with principalities, with, with unseen spiritual forces against us. Remember the story that Jesus told of the workers in the vineyard? Remember that famous parable? He tells a story about a master gardener who goes on a hiring spree. It must have been harvest or something. And some of his workers begin in the morning. It's a good crew. They're working hard. And others, they slept in. They, they start later in the afternoon. Some, they, they're, they're night owls. They, they come in the evening. They get their start almost at closing time. But at the end of the day, as they all clock out, this master ends up giving everyone the same wage. The early birds are furious about this. They say, wait, time out, time out. You paid him a full day's wage, but he only worked for a few hours. I've been working from sundown to sunup. Sun up to sundown. You remember the master's response? He said, are you envious because I'm generous? In other words, God looks at us and says, well, why are you looking to your left or your right? This is between me and you. See, Saul had been removed as king, right? And, and the way I see it, the grace here is that God didn't destroy him as he could have and should have. He just removed him. Saul had his turn. He blew it. God said, nope, you're done. But in Saul's entitlement, right, in this jealous rage, he's so blind to God's will, all he can see is his own will. Which really leads us to the second point, and that is when, when we covet, when we play the comparison game, we not only end up angry, we also end up anxious, fearful. I recently read a story in a leadership magazine of it's about two cows grazing in a, a, a field as this milk truck passed by. And on the side of this truck were the words pasteurized, homogenized, standardized, vitamin A infused, delicious lactose-free milk. The story goes, one cow sighed and said to the other, makes you feel sort of inadequate, doesn't it? <laughs> See, Saul knows he's no longer king, right? He's yesterday's monarch but he cannot accept that God has moved in a new direction. So in this fearful, this, this anxious moment, he picks up the spear, the, the sign of his kingship, and he hurls it at full intent to kill the threat in front of him. See, but Saul's forgotten one key detail about life. You cannot outmaneuver God's will. And look at how this moment leads to a slippery slope now. Look at this in verse 12. It says, Saul was now afraid of David because he knew the Lord was with him. Just as Saul knew the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. 
You see the fear? I mean, what a tragic place to live out your days. He's now terrified. God had given Saul over to the desires of his heart, removed him as king. But instead of Saul repenting and turning back to the Lord, Saul's rebellion goes into full measure. He doubles down. Later in the story, we're going to find out in a few weeks how Saul goes to seek out psychics in a medium, right? He goes to the witch of Endor and he's hoping for something. He'll go so far as to kill his own son if he has to, to maintain this kingship. Here's how I see this, and maybe I'm being a simpleton. The way I see it, we have two options as followers of Christ, right? We can fear the Lord, follow his ways, submit to his will, or we can fear this life. You can put your trust, your hope, your faith, your contentment in who you are and God, or you can try time and time again to go at it your own way. Instead of Saul turning and giving his life back to the Lord in faith, He's decided he's going to go his own in this jealous rage. You know, power is a toxic pill, right? Envy is a destructive path. He said, I'll just kill the man. That'll show up. And yet we now watch as this unleashed envy, this, this sin in his life begins to lead to his downfall, which brings us to our third point, and that is this. When envy goes unchecked, it ultimately leads to our isolation. When envy goes unchecked, it leads to our isolation and our Loneliness, note this, the crowds had originally gathered not for King David. The scripture tells us they had gathered for King Saul. Verse six told us these women, they were singing and dancing to meet their commander in chief in the streets. But he knows the spirit of the Lord is now with David. And so Saul decides the only thing I can do here is I'm gonna remove this this friend who's been bringing me comfort and peace from my courts. Saul decided, The only thing left to do is to get him out. Look at how this plays in verse 13. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. Now just think of the absurdity here. Saul breaks his relationship with David, right? Think about this. Hoping that the giant slayer will blend in with the rest of the soldiers on the field and everybody will forget about him. I mean, he's lost his mind. Our lesson tells us David went out and went in among his troops, out and in, out and in, meaning he was with his men in every battle that they fought. And more than that, we're told by God's grace, David was now successful in every undertaking he took. I mean, if this is a chessboard, Saul's played the game entirely wrong. First, you tried to pin your perceived enemy against the wall. You missed twice. How powerful do you look, Saul? And then you send David out in the fields thinking maybe he'll disappear all you did was elevate his public leadership. And by the time we get to the end of our passage, we're told all of Israel and Judah had fallen in love, not with Saul, but with David. Saul, what you meant for harm, God used for good. So let me ask you as we wrap up, what is the moral of this story? I think this saga of King Saul, as I said, I think it's a cautionary word for us, right? It's it's a reminder to to check where do you find your self-worth? Do you find it in the comparison game and the the stats on the back of your card? Or do you rest in the Lord and something much more, something immeasurable? Do you live your life with, with your own plans or are you willing to submit your life to his plans? See, the sin of our envy will lead time and time again. Mark it, it's in the Bible, we've seen it this morning to anger and fear and ultimately our isolation. 
But the cure, the cure is to quit looking at the stat sheet and start looking toward the Lord. Look at how Jerry Bridges, a Christian author, once said it. He said it like this. He said, the cure for every sin, the sin of envy, is to find our contentment with God. It really is the, the tale of two kings, right? And our prayer should be, Lord, remove from us the heart of King Saul. We want a heart of King David. We're going to find later in the series, David's no perfect man, right? This change in leadership is not based on David's merit. It's based on God's grace. But as we look at these two men and we compare and contrast them, there is one clear distinctive that we find. One sought out the Lord, the other sought out himself. And I find it no coincidence that this same King David later sits down and writes the famous words in Psalm 23. What does he say? He says, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. God is enough. Here's the takeaway, right? Just like David, we've been promised by Jesus Christ that the Lord is with us. You don't ever have to worry about a harmful spirit coming upon you. If you are in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you. The, the Lord goes with you with ever, wherever you go. He said, I will not leave you or forsake you. And so like David, right? If we have Christ, what else do you need? Here's something I think worth wrestling this, with, with this week. Who are we comparing our lives to? What flawed metrics have we created that we build up our self-worth with around others? And is that, is that metric really what you want to build your countenance upon? Saul, thousands. David, ten thousands. Who cares? Right? Because we already know what God looks at is not the outward appearance, but the heart. Let's ask God to help us with that fact this morning. Will you pray with me? God, we live in a comparison culture, Lord. Every, everywhere we look, it's ingrained in us. It's kind of a challenging word to think about. The more, the more that we soak it up, the, the more difficult it becomes, Lord. And yet we know that if we have you as our shepherd, we have nothing else to want. Lord, that if we have you as our, our God and King, as our, our Savior and Lord, there's nothing else in this life that can compare God, we, we know the Apostle Paul said all of it's rubbish, garbage, compared to knowing you. So Lord, when it comes to the, the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see our lives, would, would you help us to first rest in you, to live into your promises that that would be enough, God, and quit looking around at a world that plays the comparison game and instead look to you to quit playing by the rules of our own will and instead plan to live by yours. Lord, help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.